Hello, this is episode 18, and my guest today is Michael Patterson. Michael is the co-chair of the Anchorage Tenants Union, which is an organization supporting the movement for tenants' rights, housing justice, and today will be a fantastic discussion between different perspectives. We'll talk about paying rent, landlords, rent control, and the economics of price ceilings and floors. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely no problem. So one of the things is if we have an opinion about absolutely anything, it's important that we're able to discuss that opinion with somebody who doesn't agree with us or to have the conversation so that we can move at least, maybe you can call it our society or something, but we can move things forward, move the discussion forward. We are going to disagree today, but that's exactly what Alaska Conversations is about. And I also am very thankful that you are willing to take the time to have the discussion with me. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see these discussions, you know, as necessary. And then on top of that, you know, a lot of people like to frame them as sort of like it's a conflict of ideas, but I like to see it more like uh, it's a collaborative process, you know, where we're sort of like testing each other's sort of um, like beliefs and ideologies. And I think, you know, out of that collaborative process, you kind of get one, practical solutions to problems, and two, you get the best, the, uh, the most best solution that you possibly can, given whatever the variables or conditions are. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking very forward to this conversation. And then, um, you know, in terms of, like, what the Anchorage Tenants Union uh, wants to do, you know, we want to, basically, we want to empower tenants. You know, we see, we see them as a particular class of people that are underserved in terms of financial institutions, financial mechanisms that help them with hardship. Uh, the dynamic between landlords and tenants is pretty skewed towards landlords, in our opinion, and then have the same ability that, say, a banker's association or a landlord's association has in terms of lobbying, you know, the Anchorage Assembly, the mayor, the governor, and that's what we're trying to build towards in a more abstract sense. And that is that is accurate. There are um, some disproportionate power structure in negotiations between tenants and landlords. That that um, that's definitely something that has to be acknowledged, laid out on the table uh, to begin with. So the Anchorage Tenants Union is ba- is calling for joining into the national discussion on a rent strike, I believe. So what are, what are kind of your platform ideas or, or to begin with? So with the, so historically I have the backup COVID-19 has really changed everything. I think, I don't think there's any debate about that. Whatever, whatever sector or part of society you come from, it, everything's going to be different. So with a rent strike historically, it's more used as a tool. So let's say, you know, my apartment complex, I have shrews, and my landlord just doesn't adequately address the problem or refuses to address the problem. And so my neighbors have shrews as well. And then same, you know, same story with the landlord. So what we would do, instead of individually dealing with this problem, we would just kind of collectively take these issue, this issue to the landlord and say, you need to do something about this. You know, our lease says you have to do something about this. And if they refuse sort of like diplomacy first and you try to negotiate, um, then something like a wrench strike is sort of like the uh, tool of last resort. And you refuse to pay rent. It's not that you're, 
never going to get that money as a landlord. It's really until you meet your obligations as a landlord, we're going to withhold the rent from you until this problem is fixed. So that's how a rent strike is traditionally used. What we're kind of seeing across the country is a sort of new application of it as a means of like class pressure on the government to provide policies that are going to alleviate some problems for people, for renters. So I know in Alaska, we do have Senate uh, Bill 241 passed and the governor signed into law that has a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures until July 1st. And then there's a, you can't, there's no uh, utility shutoffs or uh, halted until November 15th that is paired with the governor's state of uh, emergency declaration. So in some localities, in some states, that's what a rent strike is supposed to do is pressuring the government to enact policies to help renters. Now, this does have a direct effect on landlords, but a lot of the rent strikes across the country are also calling for halts to foreclosures and canceling mortgages as well. Because if, you know, if you're a small landlord, if you are a nonprofit, if you are a small business, you should not be paying rent or mortgage right now because the economy has just been, it's toasted. And if you see what, like with the feds in Congress, you know, with the federal reserve, they're just banks have access to trillions of dollars and not a debate. It's just automatically assumed it's going to happen. And it is happening. Whereas, you know, we're trying to get just $1,200 from a stimulus check and it took weeks. There was a huge debate, you know, adding $600 in additional unemployment uh, insurance huge debate in which they don't even want to, you know, there's a debate about that, but that's a different episode, I'm assuming. But with a rent strike, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so just when you talk about a rent strike, uh, we'll, we'll just stay in Anchorage for a second. Are you talking about, uh, somebody that has to show that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted them? So you need to show that you've been laid off or that you can't work or is this everybody, even if you can work from home or if your job's been deemed essential, et cetera? How does that work? So ideally, uh, yes. It, we, if you are have been impacted negatively by COVID-19 uh, in an economic sense, the tenants union you should set, is asking, you know, you should spend that money on food, medicine, and keeping your family safe. Uh for folks that haven't been negatively infected or not affected, affected, uh, you know, if you want to strike in solidarity with those who have been, we're also supporting that as well. So it's yes to both, but for different reasons. And if you have it now, if you're a renter and you don't pay your rent, and let's say you don't pay your rent in May and you don't pay your rent in June and you don't pay your rent in July, an eviction notice can come out to you in July. Let's say that moratorium ends. And it's very likely that you will find yourself evicted. And does do evictions have an impact on your credit score, I assume. And so there will be some negative repercussions for renters down the road, long-term implications that they do have to weigh when they're thinking about what they're going to accomplish. Yes, and so, and that's the, the sort of like one of the premises of a rent strike is that you have a significant amount of people doing it as well. And on top of that, with COVID nineteen, there's the truth is there's already people who can't pay their rent, and they're still in the same situation that you're describing, and they're not striking. And even if the moratorium ends on uh, in July on July one, they're still going to be in that same situation that you're describing for no fault of their own. You know, and so what we're saying is that one, the state of Alaska, the municipality, wherever you live, needs to start thinking long term about these what we're calling essentially mass evictions that may be coming to Anchorage or to Alaska in general for folks, for renters that had to no fault of their own, did not put themselves in a situation, and that we're saying that the state, the government needs to do something like in terms of long term planning, needs to see this coming and do something about it. The so the mortgage the mortgages are going to have to get paid and, and there there could be an argument that maybe we just need to maybe we need to provide more liquidity to property managers maybe 
we can forgive mortgages and and do all of those things. Those are those right. are possibilities, but they aren't um, they aren't great solutions because the more money that we pump into the system, potentially there hasn't been any evidence of this. I will tell you this: there has not been evidence that we have expanded our debt by uh, three, almost four times over the last fifteen years, and we haven't seen dramatic inflation we haven't seen any of these worries that some people would say but theoretically those those will be coming um sure but the the other piece of it is is that if you build up these back payments the mortgages are going to have to get paid and what i can see happening is mom and pop landlords are not going to be able to keep their mortgages now larger institutions corporations are going to be able to buy those cheaper properties that they need to get out of and so you'll move you'll move the market more to corporate uh, corporate ownership of rental properties which would mean that you're not able to negotiate your rent as well with other landlord with your mom and pop landlord which would maybe make things even worse for the renter do you have anything to say on that one well, yeah, I mean, I would say that's why the, these rent strikes across the country and uh, the Anchor Tenancy Union, that's why we do support bailouts for small landlords, small businesses, and tenants. And then, uh, you know, in terms of the debt, I mean, it's hard for me, you know, when I see the cruise lines or airlines or the banks getting hundreds of billions of dollars. And then when we talk about uh, working class or middle class people, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. What about the debt? You know, in terms of corporations, being like the same thing with the, the I think it was the PPP or the small business loans, how those cor- those larger corporations like basically stole millions of dollars from small businesses. I just don't. It's hard for me to actually, you know, when we talk about debt, well, where's the debt actually being applied? Is it being applied to working class folks or is it being applied to McDonald's? You know, and I think that's a larger discussion about the priorities of government in terms of serving the people or serving corporations. But I know, like we were talking before, you know, I was in the army and when I got deployed to Iraq, it was right at the beginning of the Great Recession. And so it's and sort of like I grew up here in Alaska. I was raised basically Republican. Like I grew up on right wing talk shows. So like Lars Larson, uh, Laura Ingram before she went on Fox News, you know, uh, Michael Medved. I listened to all those people growing up. And so I had this idea in my head because I was, I was like 11 when 9-11 happened. And so like ever since then, I was like, I'm joining the military. I'm going to go overseas, you know, fight for my country. But when I actually got there overseas, I see us like handing out money to corrupt Iraqi generals. And then I'm reading about, uh, you know, in the paper, millions of people losing their jobs and their homes. And it's hard for me to take this debt question and argue with it because I just really think it's just a misapplication of priorities. You know, we're willing to spend trillions of dollars uh, overseas and bailing out banks, bailing out corporations. But when it comes to bailing out regular working class people, mom and pop landlords, um, small business owners and renters, it's suddenly, suddenly the questions about how do we pay for it come up when none of that question has even come up at all when you talk about the wealthy and powerful. Well, you, so another piece of it, though, is perverse incentives. So if, if we're going to take landlords and say, okay, even if we bailed them out, et cetera, um, if, if we're going to allow rent strikes to go on without evictions, one of the other – if I were a landlord, perhaps what I'd do is, is require six months deposit in the future, mm-hmm. which is going to price people out of their apartments, uh, out of their right. houses, etc. because you're going to need that cushion in case something like this happens. Because COVID is going to this, – this crisis really changes the way that we view, at least in the, in the near term. For the next two or three years, we're viewing the world differently. So as a landlord, I when I say, okay, well – Instead of two thousand uh, dollars deposit, I need you to show that you have twelve months of rent in your savings account. Well, right. that's going to price people out of their housing more than 
than the crisis already is, I would think. Right. And so I, I think this is where we get into the fundamental uh, difference is that landlords are treating housing like a commodity on the market. The Anchorage Tenants Union is arguing that housing is a human right. There is no alternative to housing. The only alternative to housing is homelessness. You know, there's no alternative to water. There's no alternative to air, and there's no alternative to housing. So, yes, in a purely economic sense, from a landlord's perspective, yeah, it makes sense. I'm going to, for for my own financial security, I'm going to, you know, require a bigger security deposit. In our opinion, that's really inhumane. That's really unethical to basically say my profit is worth more. My financial security as an individual is valued higher than say having working class people have secure housing. And this is where, this is why something like an Anchorage Tenants Union needs to exist in the first place. Cause as like you, as you said in the beginning, there is a very skewed power dynamic between landlords and tenants. So for a landlord to do that, in our opinion, is very unethical and immoral, especially after a crisis. And not only that, not just COVID-19 like health crisis itself, but on top of that, we don't know how long the economic, obviously the economic impact is going to outlive the pandemic itself. And so what something like Anchorage Tenants Union is doing is saying the dynamic needs to change. The, the philosophy behind housing needs to change. Essentially what we want is a housing revolution in Alaska and in the country to stop viewing housing as some sort of like market, like market free capital, uh, enterprise. Cause we saw what happened with the great recession in housing too, when it's treated like that. And now we're seeing it again. And so like, I understand cause my parents actually used to be landlords growing up. So I understand. And they're small landlords. It's hard. <laughs> That's why I refuse to be a landlord because it was awful. I <laughs> like what they like. It did not seem fun, you know, but I understand where you're coming from in terms of like a uh, business person's, economic stability. But what we're saying is that your choice to be a landlord, because it is a choice, it's not a right, you don't have to do it, does not outweigh somebody's right to housing. Well, so this is a this is a fundamental argument. This might be a little bit too big of a topic for us to address, but sure. so you're, you're talking about the markets. I mean, fundamentally, the landlord is providing a house for you to use and it, it has- I would disagree. I would disagree. I would say if the if the if the argument is being said that if if renters don't pay the rent, then the bank is gonna foreclose on the landlord because they're the ones with the loan, then it's the renters providing the housing. The landlord is just the middleman. Um uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure about that because and this is the reason. It, because if I take the risk in putting my capital out in order to purchase a home, if you're a renter and and my house gets foreclosed on, you move on with with very little downside. I mean, it, it sucks that you have to move, etc. But you're not going into bankruptcy. The landlord is taking the risk on capital and needs to get a return on on that capital in order to induce them to put the money into the market to provide the housing for somebody to use. So if you have the landlords. And they're making the investments in housing, um, and you're you're saying that uh, that the renters are the ones that are actually providing that. They don't have the capital to build these houses. They don't have the capital to acquire the houses and provide them. the The only right. other option would be to have all of the housing essentially provided by the government, maybe. What what a crazy and scary idea! If you're a landlord, no, that, that <laughs> I mean, a... I mean, no, that's and that's what our long term view is that social housing policy is the only effective way in terms of providing secure housing for people in the long term. Like, war, like it sort of amazes me that we have to have a debate about halting evictions during a global pandemic that puts tens of thousands of Alaskans out of work, including myself. Um, you know, I, it's not, a, it shouldn't be a debate. And so the, I, the idea, and it's probably too big of a discussion, is that housing, you, there's no alternative to housing. You have to have shelter. It's a very basic human need. But and a, we see, you know. Uh, there's, no alternative to, there's no alternative to food either. 
you know, you exactly. have to have food. If you can't provide your own food, then you're you're reliant on uh, the the graces of of a, a farmer to provide it at a market price, of which he can turn some form of profit. Well, that's it. Well, I mean, the, the thing is with housing is that, you know, it, the way we view it, it's a public utility. It's no different than roads. It's no different than healthcare. It's no different than, like you're saying, food. Like you have to have it. And the problem is, is that if you're applying market principles to housing, then yeah, what you're saying makes absolute sense from a very market standpoint. But I think where people sort of break down this conversation is that we're basically talking two different languages, you know? So like, because to put it bluntly, I don't really care about market principles when it comes to housing because my perspective and the union's perspective is that you have to give people housing. And I would disagree that the landlord takes on the bigger risk in terms of like moving because the thing with being a tenant is that if you don't have secure housing and you're moving everywhere every year, and especially if you have a family, that's not good for children. That's not good for family stability if you're moving to every neighborhood because the landlord and they do this, uh, you know, to try to secure long term um, leases is you know if you sign a twelve year lease you'll pay twelve hundred. If you sign a six month lease lease your rent is like thirteen hundred. And you know if you do month to month it's thirteen fifty. You know and that in itself is like a coercive dynamic. So I would say in terms of yes capital and market principles sure you know you're taking on the risk as a landlord. But like I said earlier that's your choice. You took that risk on. You know whereas with the tenant. Housing is not a choice. They have to have housing, especially if you have kids, you know. And so, I mean, there's just that fundamental disagreement in terms of like, I don't think market principles outweigh people's human needs. Well, I, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say that it outweighs people's needs. What, what my argument would be is that uh, public housing or uh, treating housing as a human right, it, it's, that's a, it's a great ideal. I'm saying that it doesn't accomplish any of that. I think that there, I think if you look at uh, Pruitt Igo, St. Louis, any other public housing uh, developments, um, that they've all deteriorated over time. They've all provided less um, less benefit than what was than what was uh, at least promoted that this is going to solve certain problems. It it posed negative externalities to the communities around them. And the only good argument that can be made for the public housing is that we just haven't done it right yet. Um, and, and so if you look at a, a trail of public housing over the last 60, 70, 80 years, I don't think anybody would say, well, maybe they would. Um, so I won't say that nobody will say, I think that it, it is a, a trail of, of, uh, of destruction, essentially, it has not it has not worked out the way that it says. Now, perhaps we're doing it incorrectly. That's a that's a that is certainly a possibility. But the evidence for me seems to say that public housing does not accomplish what we think that it's going to, and that really the problem is the supply and demand of housing. So you have to the best way to address housing problems is by having more supply, which would be inducing, inducing or incentivizing more landlords to purchase more properties and to, uh, and to provide the housing that way. What do you so, think about that? So I, I live in, I live in like a private HUD, like it's a private, the management company is private, but I live in, but it receives uh, HUD uh, funding. And so I have three kids and, uh, my fiance. So there's five of us. The three bedroom or the four bedroom that we have here is $1,400. Unheard of in Anchorage. This is the only way. And we both work full time. Both of us go to school. I'm a disabled veteran who gets uh, veterans compensation. There is no way I can afford. Because like literally before this, me and my partner were sleeping in the living room, like in a bed. So like I understand when you're arguing for like against public housing, but the thing is we haven't done it right. You know, and a lot of the variables that go into say things like rent control and public housing, it's because one, a lot of there's a ideology and a way of thinking, especially within certain like politics and governing that undermines public programs. Neoliberalism 
undermines, when it tries to privatize everything, undermines public housing. I mean, just to, as an example, like USPS, the Postal Service, mismanagement by the government that is hostile to public uh, you know, public sector unions, public entities undermines the ability for USPS to be profitable or effective or whatever. But then when it comes to public housing, what we're saying is that you're correct. The only other entity that has the capital or the means to do public housing would be the government, would be state you know, housing, would be social public housing policies. And so what we're arguing in the long term is that we need to reevaluate how we apply free market principles to housing and say, you know what, it's not really okay, it doesn't work because it's not effective. Because a lot of reasons why say things like rent control and public housing initiatives fail is because you're trying to do something, you're trying to enact policy that is inherently oppositional to free market housing principles. And a lot of times, especially with rent control, it's landlords that really undermine it because one, for some reason, it de-incentivizes them to keep up their properties, which you're if you're going to be a landlord. You're talking rent, I'm, contro- I'm, rent control de-incentivizes. Yes, landlords. Rent because con- rent, in a rent- yeah, rent control, but, but free market would incentivize the landlords to make their properties as nice as possible for the tenants. Because they want to make, yes, they want to increase their profitability and maintaining your property increases property values, which increases rent. Like, I I understand that. But what I'm saying is that their sole motivation is their profit. Their motivation is not to provide housing. It's to make money. And that is in a contradictory sort of perspective when it comes to something like when like housing, which is a basic human need and a fundamental right in our opinion. So it's really this problem of you're trying to do social policy that is inherently contradictory to the purveying, you know, economic outlook in the, in the United States. It gets undermined by politicians and elected officials and administrators who don't like it. And on top of that, those who are losing out on it, landlords, also undermine it when they're put under like rent control and social uh, housing policies. So like a really great example of social housing policies is Vienna in Austria. I think it's one out of 20 uh, houses in Vienna is a social housing and it's paid for by a tax, which I know very scary, very scary word. Yeah. Taxes are scary. I'm with you. No, no, I'm just being uh, facetious, but you know, like, and it's matched by employees and employers pay for it. And, you know, and what they also did was they raised the income levels to actually qualify. So I think it'd be like, if you made like 50 grand, you would qualify for social housing. And it is a, it is a success, you know, because fundamentally the uh, municipal government in Vienna was like, housing is a, is a fundamental right. And so I think if the larger, and this is to kind of like rent control and like, housing policies, they're really just one like set of policies, one avenue in which to address things like poverty and income inequality. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that it's, it's, it's for a different episode. But like, you know, the culture around housing has to change. And right now, the culture around housing is that it's a free market principles apply to it. The landlord's profit uh, sort of takes precedence over the tenant's basic fundamental right to housing. And I know that you personally, you may not agree with that statement, but that's functionally what happens. You know, you could be the greatest landlord ever. You could be the Buddha or Gandhi of landlords, but if that landlord does not pay, you will you will most definitely file with the court to get that tenant evicted, you know? And so that's- that I think is sort of like the fundamental disagreement and that, you know, the culture has to change around housing. Well, you know, there's there's the long conversation of, of how socialism works, how capitalism works, how a mixed economy works, and maybe we'll get into that towards the end of end of this. But I would sure. I would say that um, in response to that, that human beings are self interested, interested, and so we're you're there's going to have to be a profit to incentivize us to do it, and. And you don't, I mean, there is a utopic, uh, maybe everybody would work together for the common good, 
but history tells us that that is not going to happen. There, there's never, and and this is the, so number one, there's never been a completely. So the idea of a completely free market society is, uh, it, it's it's foreign because we have always had it's utopic. Yeah, we have, yeah. we have always had a mixed economy. In the early portions of the United States, we had extremely high tariffs. We had other other uh, pieces of, of of the economy that were re- regulated by the by the government, and so we've never had a completely free market uh, world. It is a, it's a utopia. There's going to have to be some intervention. We have had examples of a completely socialist society, of which none of them have turned out very well. But I want to. Before we go into that, let me go back to something you said about, um, like, a utility. When, when we're talking about public goods, um, one of the most important aspects of a public good is, is excludability. And so mm-hmm. you, can't, you, can, you can pay for police as a public good because if, if I don't pay my taxes, if I don't pay property taxes for a police officer – and I'm walking down the street and somebody robs me, the police officer still shows up. And so right. so you can't exclude people from the police. And so we say, okay, we're going to do this as a public good. Housing is directly, is, is obviously excludable. If you don't pay your rent, you don't get into the house. And so it, a market does work there. A market doesn't necessarily work in police because you would have a bunch of people that want a free ride on the system, not paying to pay into it and then use it when they need it. And so the system wouldn't support itself. Housing is fundamentally different than that. Well, I don't think – I think public safety – I mean, like just saying public safety is a fundamental right and protection that everyone should be entitled to. No, that's – Essentially. No, what I'm, what I'm saying is if we want police, if, if we want to have a service – let's say fire, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, want... you can't exclude anyone uh, from it. Right, and and if my apartment, if I have apartment adjoining yours, and you pay a hundred dollars a month for it, and my apartment catches on fire, the police ha- or the fire has to come and put my fi- my house out to protect your house, but I didn't pay anything right. for it, and so it's it's kind of like the old lighthouse argument or any of these things. If it's a public good, you can't exclude people from it. The market's not going to work the same way. But with well, I don't really see how housing works, like, because if you, if my neighbor is not doing well, or let's say, especially here in Anchorage with homelessness camps and whatnot, uh, or if my neighbor is rent burdened, which I think is, you know, 25% or more of your income goes toward uh, paying your rent, you know, housing is a fundamental, good housing, safe housing is a fundamental part of a healthy and functioning community and you cannot have and i know alaska would really like this idea of record individualism but the reality is that individuals are the consequence of their environment and you know their inputs and then as they you know get older they become their own people but like if you come from a dysfunctional community the odds are not very good for you on how things turn out and so what we're arguing is that social housing policies housing is a fundamental human right is part of a strong and resilient and healthy communities. You cannot have delight, and like you said, with the social, the public housing in St. Louis that you saw, it's dilapidated. It's not, you know, it's not good. It's not a good place to be. And that community was probably not doing very well, you know. And so, in terms of housing, it's not. It doesn't exclude. It, you can't exclude anyone from housing because the consequences of that, and we see that all the time are not good for people and they're not good for communities. And I'm not saying whether we should or shouldn't exclude people. I'm saying that there's the potential to exclude people without there being a free rider. Now, if for example, I just, I, I just don't understand how you free ride housing because everyone needs it. Uh, yeah. So, so if it's a, it's a hard example to use for free riding because the reason that I can't really come up with one is because you can't free ride housing. No, you, you need housing. <laughs> you, but so a free riding is getting a service without paying for it. So if you don't right. if you don't pay for your housing, then you're free riding for for example. Now Right. Now if it's something that's excludable like you can't free ride cabbages. Because you have to go right. to the store and pick up a cabbage, and you have to pay three dollars for your cabbage. 
Now, if, for example, all food in the grocery store was uh, free and you had to go in and out of the the goodness of your heart, you had to write a $50 check or something. This is a weird example. It's it's hard. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, you can see. Yeah, you can. (laughs) I see see where you're going with it. I see. So, I mean, I would say like a food bank gets out free food or, uh, you know, like with SNAP benefits, which I've also been on SNAP benefits, uh, you know, like everyone is paying like in terms of paying like a free riding, I don't really buy into the argument that people like one, I think the vast majority of people are productive uh, members of society, regardless if they don't pay taxes or not, because they're contributing in some way. And I think we see this now with essential workers, you know, like all of a sudden grocery store clerks are heroes, you know, uh, all of a sudden janitors are heroes. Now they make minimum wage, which that shouldn't be happening, but they're essential. Everybody, and we see what happens too with, like before this, I was a carpet cleaner. You know, we see what happens, especially in the consumer society, when people can't work anymore, like the little people, the common person, and the economy crashes. It's not, uh, you know, and we see what happens too with landlords and housing. It's when renters can't pay their rent, the landlord is in bad, uh, you know, in hot water. It's because this this idea of how society is structured that, you know, wealth creators and job creators are the ones who create everything. Landlords provide housing and banking. It's really the people at the bottom are the ones who drive society and so provide housing because everybody contributes to society in some way or another, not just voluntarily, but like, and it goes to my original point of like housing, good, safe housing is a fundamental aspect of good safe and healthy communities and like if we don't have functional communities or healthy communities we do not have a functional society and i think we are seeing the consequences of dysfunctional housing right now in real time because of covid19 and that it really exacerbated this idea that housing should be treated like a free market principle when in reality if you don't have secure housing for everybody and i mean everybody you know you're going to have problems when you have crisis. And like, I know this is a way, this is way out there in terms of conversation, but if people think COVID-19 is bad, wait till you hear about climate change. And if we don't do anything about that, Oh, I, oh it's, I, it's I, happening. No, jeez, that's way out there. That's exactly know, the worry that people. That's exactly the worry <laughs> that people have is that this is that that this this sort of precedent is being set and, and it's going to be used. So let let me move to rent control just for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's skip be, the fighting words. <laughs> well, because because climate climate change is climate change is clearly happening. All of right. all of etc. But there are there are trade offs in our policies. What we do, so, so yes, sure. it would be great to put people in housing, but you have to make sure that it's a fundamental human right. What you have to, but what has to be um, accepted in that is that it's going to be lower quality for the vast majority of people, and um, it's and, and that's just the way that it's it's going to work because there's not going to be. I mean, I just I, I I disagree because when you have, you know, what you're really like, there's a inequality in housing just like with a lot of things in in the united states and in alaska and like you know when you go on a hillside and like because i would clean i would clean carpets up there and you know you see literally it's like a little castle perched on the mountain looking down at anchorage you know and then i go to my uh any apartment i've really lived in you know there's a it's hard for me to buy the argument that you know if you were a billionaire or a millionaire and you had to live in a a nice single cottage that that somehow constitutes a uh, you know a deg- uh, a degradation of your standard of living. Where for the vast majority of people, well, not vast majority, but for a majority of people, housing is inadequate. And if most of the housing is inadequate, and we are and free market principles are what applies to housing, it doesn't really seem to me that you know that it's social housing policies because one, I don't think we've done them very well. And two, I think the free market does a lot to undermine social housing policies. It's a, it's a really hard argument for me to swallow to be like the vast majority of people would live in, you know, more equitable destitution, you know? Well, right. I mean, but it's not just the billionaire on the hillside or the millionaire. Alaska doesn't have any billionaires. It's not just the, it's not just the, uh, the, the person with money on the hillside. It's the 
carpenter that built the house. It's the people that supply the goods for the house. It's the people that that maintain the house. All of these other aspects of it, and and so there's misallocation. But let me talk. Let me talk about rent control sure. just for a second, because rent control, if you rent control is another piece of of the platform, and rent control has been studied extensively, at least in the field of economics, and the vast majority of economists find rent control to have a negative outcome. And the reason, before we get into it, um, so you have a supply. If you can imagine a supply of something and a demand of something, if you set a price ceiling that's below the price that people are willing to pay, then you're going to have more demand than you have supply. And then then in the long run, what happens is because the economic profit that somebody's receiving, or not the economic profit, but the actual profit, it doesn't in it doesn't entice anybody to make investments. So over the long right. run, the shortage of housing actually grows. So rent control grows a shortage of housing and creates a demand higher than what there creates that demand that is higher than the supply, which makes it hard for people to get into rent controlled houses. California. Right. So- California is right now, you know, California is enacting rent control. I believe it's statewide. Um, yes, at least I, I think it's, it's letting localities do it. it. And so when when we look at rent control, some of the highest property uh, property values in the entire country, some of the highest rents in the entire country are in places that have some form of rent control. And... Um, Ed Glasser from Harvard University, economist from Harvard University, actually is quoted as, I believe, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, as saying something like, short of bombing, there's no better way to destroy a city than, than rent control. Now, that's that's obviously hyperbole, but um, right. rent control, how would rent control work necessar- necessarily? Because there's a lots of exemptions, there's a lot of things that... Um, Rent control, when we say rent control, we have to know exactly what we're talking about. Right. So I would say there's there's a historical difference in terms of, so there's, oh, I'm sorry, Very, I live right next to Merrill Field now. Hey, it happens. You know that in, yeah. the, in, the, day, in the days of COVID, everybody is used to, uh, I'm not wearing pants or the dog <laughs> right. came in or whatever it is. Right. Uh, would be so basically, you know, there's, there's two, there's a generational difference. So, first generation rent control was like the price cap, the, the price ceiling you're talking about. The rent control that's used nowadays, or the second uh, generation rent control, is more akin to like rent stabilization. So, basically, the purpose of rent control stabilization is just to keep the existing housing affordable for working class folks or for people who need it. And so in terms of like constraining housing supply, it does do that, but it does that because it's not more universally applied. So for uncontrolled uh, units, those not controlled by rent, you may see a increase in rent or you may see a decrease in rent. So with the increase in rent, that's gonna be due to, basically it constrains the housing market and what it also and the, the tenants in the uncontrolled units uh who see a decrease it's because like you were saying it de-incentivizes the landlord to actually uh who is under rent controlled pro- who has a rent controlled property to really like invest in that rent control property and so it lowers the property value of that rent controlled unit and then it lowers the property values uh with the uncontrolled units around there and then but you know in terms of like, yes, I actually looked up a bunch of studies about this, and the vast majority only really focus on the economic impacts of housing, which if you are a landlord or a financial institution or a property management company, no, you don't like it. Why would you like it? It affects with your profits. That, but it doesn't – they don't really go into – I'm the, sorry. The economic – the economic outcome is not just the landlord; it's the tenants themselves. Uh, you like right. Th- if you live things. in an uncontrolled unit, if you live in an uncontrolled unit, there is either an increase or a decrease, and that's because I don't think rent con- like rent control should be applied more universally to more units. And on top of that, social housing policies can also 
make up the difference in terms of like if you know developers or landlords don't want to invest, then the government has to. It's obligated to. So, let me, but in terms of, let me, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let me talk for a second on California because I mean this is probably perhaps let's just take California's rent control types of laws. Say that we do them in Alaska. One of the things mm-hmm. is that they've got a reach back policy, which means that rent is capped at inflation plus the five percent, which that's the rent stabilization, if you will, uh, going yeah. back to March fifteenth of two thousand and nineteen. Mm-hmm. So, because they wanted to keep landlords from jacking up their prices right at the end. So, what you have in California is any landlord who was generous and kept rents low is now being punished, while any landlord who was charging the absolute max and and gouging the renter as much as possible, they are benefiting. And the decades of work, I think they they... Uh, got rid of a lot of rent control like in 1994 or something like that. Um, but I don't know yeah. the exact date. But any landlord who's been generous to their tenants is being punished. And any landlord who has been charging the absolute max is being uh, being rewarded, essentially. So that's that's one serious downfall. Uh, to, I get confused uh, when people say the landlords are generous if they also say in the same conversation that uh, uh, human nature is inherently selfish. Is it are landlords selfish or are they generous? No, the the two things the two things can be can be compatible. So let's say that I have a, a unit that I rent for a thousand dollars, and right. you're my renter, and you <clears throat> are an absolutely outstanding tenant. Perhaps sure. what I do is I say, you know what, it's worth it for me to forego raising my rent $75 a month and pricing Michael out of the out of this tenant uh, out of this apartment because he's taking very good care of my property he's doing great so i'm going to keep his rents lower because it's a uh, it's better for me i don't know who the next tenant's going to be and i'm going to i'm just going to keep his rent flat and raise it only when i absolutely need to and right. uh, so that's that's being generous to the tenant if you will but you're also in your own self interest saying man I, I just got an awesome tenant that's really taking care of things. I'm going to keep rent flat for this person. Right. Well, I mean, what I would say to your California example is that in the long term, does it benefit the tenant? Okay. So so um, here's the, the, the outcomes of, of rent control. In the, in the short run and with the current tenants, there is no question – that oh it's a benefit that it's a benefit to the tenant right in the short run and that it is it keeps people from moving away from right it creates uh, housing stability it does that that absolutely does happen in the short run what you what what's important in rent control is what happens in the long run and what happens in the long run is that there's less in there is less investment in uh, rent control or rent control units, and so the demand for rent control goes up, and it costs people a lot to try to get into rent control units. It, uh, if you have a family of five and you have a, a five bedroom or a four bedroom unit that's under rent control, when your kids move out, you are you are incentivized not to move out of that rent control. Apartment, and so it's a, there's a misallocation of the number of bedrooms and space, which wouldn't happen under free market type of uh, system. And then it also, I mean, that that's what happens with Airbnb. Airbnb constra- constrains housing; it takes housing away. It takes long term housing off of the market. And in terms of like, so like me and my and my fiance, we live in a four bedroom and we got three kids. Yeah, with just basic. Uh, we don't need that much space. And there's also other things you can do on top of rent control to incentivize the tenant. So say, you know, when they get the empty nest, that they go into a one bedroom that's also subsidized, you know, senior housing or, but you, you know, know but just the demand has been so high for the rent control because it's put, it's put at a price that's below the market value that there's not going to be, or at least theoretically, um, Right. At least theoretically, there won't be any availabilities for people. I mean, that's. I mean, theor- I mean, th- here's the problem with it. if if people can admit that in the short term, for the tenant to actually live 
in subsidized or rent-controlled housing that is good for them, that to me just makes the argument even stronger that all tenants, you know, who need or more tenants need it. And that it, those programs should be expanded because they, it goes back to that th- the issue I was talking about, which was you have a policy that is inherently contradictory to the free market application to housing. And so, of course, it's not it's going to lose out because it's going to get undermined. But what we're calling for is not only just these social housing policies, but really there needs to be a cultural shift in how we view housing in Alaska and in the United States. And so that's the that's the fundamental problem is that, yes, in a like you said, not a truly free market, you know, utopic um, system. But regardless, if it's not a pure free market system, if the free market beats out social housing because, one, there's not politicians or elected officials who believe in it, or two, because it's trying, you're having something that's trying to compete with the free market, and the free market is basically just going to try to undermine it, then it's not, of course it's not going to work. And that our argument as a tenants union is that those policies need to be expanded to much more people, a lot more tenants. And I think you'll start seeing a turnaround in terms of like, you know, economic success, because, you know, if you want to argue about housing constraining, like, you know, like the free market does constrain housing all the time. I don't, think that, no, like it, I don't think that the free market would constrain any housing. That's well, a, with Airbnb, it absolutely does. You can. I don't think there's an argument that says that Airbnb does not take housing off the market for residents that actually live here. Well, on if we're going to do rent control, I imagine that we're going to do rent control the same way as um, as California does, of which single-family residences are excluded. Or if you live in the house and you have somebody that's living with you, you're excluded from rent control. Sure. And so though Airbnb properties are not going to be the types of properties that are under rent control to begin with. Well, I mean, no. I mean, I've, I, I used to be a caregiver. And I've literally, my personal experience, I've literally seen landlords will take a fourplex and make one of the units an Airbnb property. And, but, like I've, I've, I've seen that. Right. But uh, what I'm saying is duplexes, threeplexes, fourplexes are not rent-controllable properties. Um, and I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that they should be. And expand, the program should be expanded to include those properties as well. It, like, okay. you know, and I think the way we, the way we would do... You know, let's treat the way we should treat rent control is the same way we should treat marijuana legalization in Alaska. The state needs to enact rent control, and then you let the localities decide how they want to do it or if they want to do it. And that, I think, is the most Alaskan thing that we could do in terms of how it's done. But I think, in terms of if Anchorage has rent control, rent or tenants, regardless of where they're at, are going to want the same thing too, especially if they're cost burden and especially if they're working class. And especially with rent control, like we're talking in the abstract, you know, we're talking pre-COVID-19 examples, but in terms of long-term economic stability for Alaska and for tenants, you know, the state needs to intervene in terms of, because the, the economic impact is going to outlive COVID-19. And like you said, the next two or three years, we're not going to operate like we used to. Honestly, I don't think we're going to operate like we used to at all. I think from now on, things are going to be a little different, but like, you know, rent control is a state intervention, and especially now, all w- the free market cannot help us because the free market is in a is in a downturn. And like you see with corporations and banks, and you know, you see, you know, I think it's Keynesian economics where they intervene at you know, like they did in two thousand eight, and now they're getting interventions. Why can't working class tenants get interventions either? Why is it somehow a downturn? For the economy, when regular people have secure housing, I just don't. I think, if anything, promoting stability for all tenants promotes community stability, which is a good thing for all, for the economy, and just for society in general. Well, I mean, I think I think that there's an obvious explanation for it. Not saying that I like it. I I don't necessarily like it, but if you're looking at bailing out a landlord in Anchorage, uh, and this is just purely cost benefit analysis and you have the landlord plus their one staff member that goes and mows the lawns or you're going to bail out delta airlines which employs tens of thousands of people um right you you know the the cost of of 
foregoing bailing out corporations for the little guy is um, you well you can see you can see the benefits of, of doing that. But oh no, man! I at the same point uh, point two, you know, we're uh, spending trillions on the military, you know, and you're telling me we can't. You're telling me the greatest country on earth to have ever existed with the strongest economy that has ever existed ever in the world cannot bail out the airline and bail out uh, Mr. and Miss, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Landlord down the street. Well, I don't buy, I don't buy it. I do not buy it. We may be able, we may be able to afford it. There are consequences to that. Um, and we may have to look into the, the bailouts, but we are, we are the greatest economy in the history of the world because we have generally avoided uh, socializing most of most of our markets, but the so the the other the other piece of uh, rent control is rent control usually uh, excludes properties that have been built in the last fifteen or twenty years because they understand that yeah. uh, developers have to get some return on their money. Um, rent control usually excludes or almost always excludes the. Uh, room and board of institutes of higher learning so you're not going to get your university rent your university apartment is not going to be rent controlled your single family home is not going to be rent controlled the duplex isn't going to be rent controlled so what you have really is uh apartment complexes are going to be rent controlled by uh apartment complexes built by large businesses are going to be rent controlled it pushes tenants into that sort of situation and then um, it it doesn't allow smaller operators to get into into the business. So it's really right, a, no, a it, Starbucks it, model versus uh, you know Sleepy Dog Coffee or, or something like that. No, no. I mean, I definitely understand that argument that basically you would be pricing out you know middle class and small landlords uh, and basically you know monopolizing housing by corporations like the Wideners of the world, but. That just means, in my opinion, that the argument goes that rent control should apply to more types of buildings and that, yeah, maybe a small landlord is not going to like it, but it's better than being priced out by Widener. You know? And on top of that, and this may sound very cold and calculating, just like a cost-benefit analysis, but in, a ten- in our opinion, in the cost-benefit analysis is that you know, we don't think you know, if landlords disappeared, we do not think people would still need housing. The demand for housing still exists. Right. Now we and can argue like we've been arguing. Nobody would build it. Oh no, because the state the state has to step up. That's basically our argument in the long end. Is that if the free market steps away because it's not profitable, then the state has to step up. It has no choice but to step up. Because what are you supposed to do? Just let people be homeless or build whatever they want, and you know, and like zoning laws and stuff go out the window. It's just it's not like I understand from the economic argument, especially like. It doesn't rent control and stuff like that does not work well. But if we can all admit that those tenants who live in rent controlled units benefit greatly from it, then I do not see how the argument for expanding rent control to include mom and pop landlords does not. You know, I don't see how it doesn't bode well. And the thing is, too, that's if you're the tenant. Now, if you're the landlord, of course you're not going to like it. Uh, that's not I'm not trying I'm not in a landlord association I'm in a tenants union I don't it's not my not to say my problem but it's not that's not my motivation you know or the union's motivation and so like I know from a business aspect I'm not gonna like it but you know this is housing we're not talking about business we're talking about people's basic fundamental rights in our opinion and their lives uh, I'm you know, if if I'm if I'm in a rent controlled apartment, and this is this is the other issue, if I'm a, in, in a rent controlled apartment, and I and I'm 25 years old and I'm starting my family, and then yes. I create, then I I make a bunch of money. I'm gonna stay in that rent controlled apartment. I'm gonna keep it forever. I might not even live in it. It might sit vacant because there's no reason not to keep it. Because as soon as I let go of that property you can't evict me you can't get rid of me my rents aren't going up there's no cost to me and so whatever what what rent control does is it makes it harder and the reason i'm saying it makes it harder on tenants it it works for the tenants that are in the housing today everybody else loses out 
Everybody so all tenants, all tenants should be in rent-controlled housing tomorrow. That's what we're saying. Okay, but if you that's put, what we're saying. If you put all tenants in rent-controlled housing, you're going to have more tenants tomorrow. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, this is social housing policy. Like, you still want to own a house, go ahead. But like, in terms of rent-controlled housing, you know, I think it's a little disingenuous to say that uh, because someone has a rent-controlled unit and that you know I can't get evicted or whatever. Well, obviously, you can still get evicted if you're, you know, being a butthead or you're violent or, you know, you're, you know, growing a, or building a meth lab. Like, obviously, you can be right. evicted yeah, there, but there for public safety stuff. But what I'm saying is, like, it's a little disingenuous to say that somehow because it's public housing or that it's uh, rent-controlled housing that people would abuse the system. I just don't – I mean, we don't see that really with public – like services in terms of like the fraud is like negligible almost. And in terms of like public housing and how ho- or rent controlled stuff, it just doesn't, I just don't see people abusing it as widely as people want to think they would, because if I don't have to worry about my housing, I can focus on other stuff. And I don't see the negative aspect of ensuring that everybody has access to housing. Now, is it going to be a mansion? No. Is it going to be, you know, a deluxe condo? Absolutely not. But the thing is, you know, you need your basic needs met. People are not having their basic needs met in terms of housing, and that's a problem for us. And so the solution that we're proposing is that rent control units are not more widely uh, applied to the housing market. And that is fundamentally what the problem is. There needs to be sort of like a critical mass or a tipping point for rent-controlled units. And I think if we actually, if the state invested in it, and if the culture around housing changed, I think you would see rent-controlled units and social uh, housing policies, such as public housing, would do a lot better because they work in other places. It's just in the United States, we have a particular outlook on the economy that's not inherently conducive to people's rights. And like, I don't think that's a hard sell or hard argument to make that, yeah, you know, the way we've run our economy since the, you know, inception of the United States has not always been very good to people. And we're saying that in this particular moment in time, especially in the oil crisis, you have to look at housing as a fundamental right because it really undermines not only people's lives, but also it's a public health measure in terms of saying like the eviction moratorium is a public health measure. It's to keep people in their houses so we're not exposing more people to potentially getting sick. And that's all we're saying in the long term. In the short term, it's a public health emergency. In the long term, it's an economic uh, uh, measure that we have to do. Rent control has not has has not done well in New York City. It has not done well in Seattle. It has not done well in San Francisco. In the long term, and so I think that the I think that the argument the argument that people will make against rent control is just that the evidence that we have to believe. You know. We're, we're constantly told this time we're going to do it better, but, but there are just incentives in our, in our society when we have free markets, private property, etc. there needs to be an incentive for people to provide the housing. There needs to, now, if you, if we completely eliminate private property, we completely have the government provide all of the housing that's necessary that may that may be a, a possibility i think it would i think it would cause a lot of uh problems down the road etc oh, other... yeah people can't even stay they can't stay in their houses for two months and they're already losing it but yeah no i, I understand what you're saying and and <laughs> so yeah so there, there's uh that piece of it but um you know overall i, I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting topic because we're going to have we're going to have to face the world a little bit differently going forward with covid I disagree about uh, rent control. I disagree about not paying your rent. You agree with it. Other people agree with you. Some people agree with me. I don't know, uh, or time is going to tell because I personally, I think, I think I'm right. You personally think you're right, and that's fine. It's sure. a great conversation. Time, time will tell uh, which steps that we're going to take. I think it's important just to just to look at history and see whether or not the policies that we're pursuing really work. And I, I think you do make a great point about uh, tenants today. They do benefit from rent control. I think tenant or not that I think I know tenants in the future do not. 
Um, and that's just kind of the way that, that it works. So what else, you know, just kind of wrapping, wrapping it up, we'll probably have numerous conversations. You can, you, you know, we can have lots of, lots of people from the group on, cause it's a great conversation to have. But, um, so anyways, what are you, what are you guys' final goals or final wrap up thoughts on the entire conversation? Then we'll, we'll end it. Well, I mean, we really want to, I don't know that we had like a, a very good conversation in terms of like the fundamental differences. Um, but in this current moment and in this crisis that we're going through, really small landlords, tenants, small businesses, you know, working class, middle class people, we're really in the same situation. The circumstances may be a little different or our situation may, may be unique, but in this instance, we are in the same boat and we need to work together to pressure you know, the government to do something that benefits all of us. So that's why we're saying rents need to be canceled. Mortgages need to be canceled. Small businesses need to, you know, be forgiven for their rent debt or, you know, all, but our take, and then in the long term, you know, we can have these conversations later in terms of like fundamental differences, free market principles, state intervention. But right now as Alaskans, cause we're all Alaskans, we're in the same boat together. And we need to figure out, at least in the short term, what, how best to help everybody. And that's going to look different. And I don't think necessarily right now, like landlord associations and the tenants union or bankers associations or large companies, like, you know, we don't need to be at each other's throats or butting heads about this stuff. We really just need to sit down and be like, okay, how can we help everybody and make sure that we all can get through this? And then, you know, afterwards we can go our separate ways and have our, debates and arguments, but I think right now, you know, we just need to fundamentally think we're all Alaskans. We all care about each other. We all want the same things for society. We just disagree about how to get there. And that's, that's the, uh, that's the point of the show. My guest today was Michael Patterson. He is with the Anchorage Tenants Union. I believe that we will have numerous shows maybe in the future that we do this i appreciate your time the conversation and um you know i i hope i hope that society chooses chooses me but if they choose you then they choose you and we're gonna go forward and solve solve all the world's problems that's what we're doing talking right now right solving all of the world's problems but you know right exactly I, i appreciate it and um have a great day Uh, You too. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.